This is Truth Talks. All right, good to be with you guys uh, tonight. Let me just uh, start by saying that um, if you are wondering about last week's podcast, we did not post that and we will not post that publicly. But if you want it, if you're uh, desiring to re-listen to last week's class, which I highly, highly, highly recommend if you're wanting that or you weren't here last week, um, see Buddy on that and he will, uh, he will figure out a way if you haven't figured out a way to get that to them. Um, yeah, Buddy will work on that. He has all that. But we decided not to post it just because of the sensitive material that was dealt with very explicitly, very clearly last week. We uh, nailed the coffin shut as it pertains to the whole endeavor of bringing pleasure to yourself with self-satisfaction. And I'll just leave it there. If there was there was no thoughts because we I asked everyone whether or not that type of sin was sin, and we nailed that shut very clearly. And because of the just the explicit nature of that and the sensitive nature of that, I just thought, you know, a number of guys we talked about it and just thought it would be best to leave that off the public airways so that we were not taken out of context. And so, uh, so if you want to listen to it and you want to share it with somebody, that's fine. But just see Buddy, and Buddy will help you uh, get that. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, just see me. But um, if you didn't hear last week's uh, lesson, you need to hear it. You need to hear it on every level. You need to hear it multiple times, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, anyway, that's why we didn't. We haven't released that, and that's our plan. All right, let's go back through like we do every week and hit the meditation points from last week. And uh, so... Uh, for number one, your fallen heart has an uncanny way of developing enslaving habits. That's the fill-in-the-blank habits, habits of self-gratification. That's really what we talked about a lot last week was, was just the uh, habitual nature of our heart and these habits that we form and that really uh, build a pathway for us to continue the impurities in our life. And our heart just has this... this uh, some somewhat mysterious nature and this um, uncanny nature about it that it just it, it just forms habits at times and we don't even realize it and we looked at that number two just as we are called to train ourselves to godliness first Timothy four seven we can often actually not can we often do train ourselves to ungodliness in greed right and that's second Peter uh, two fourteen. And that is where Peter just lays it out. And he talks about the false teachers who were marked by great immorality and debauchery. And he talks about, uses the same Greek word there in 2 Peter 2.14 as he does, as Paul does in 1 Timothy 4.7, gymnazo, and how you can actually not only train yourself, form godly habits, but you can also form ungodly habits. Train yourself in greed. Very important. Number three, the heart context. Very important word. From last week's uh, chapter and last week's lesson, the heart context of, habitu of habitual sexual sin is often infected and instigated by a wide range of desires and idols. That just is talking about the context of your heart 
um, is often permeate, it's often permeated with all kinds of idols, with all kinds of sinful desires and motivations, more than just one. And this is very important, and the book has done a good job of reminding us of this and pointing this out. Because most of us, if you're honest, and most people, when you're fighting any sin, or especially sexual sin, you tend to fixate on whatever it is, and it tends to be on the surface. So if your issue is pornography, then you're just fixated on whatever that is, whatever form that comes in, whether it's a magazine, whether it's an internet site, whether it's whatever. If it's fantasizing, it's that, right? But you tend to just fixate on that, and I need freedom from that. But little do you know that the context of your heart is just being driven by all kinds of, of sinful motivations and idols that are really what's feeding that thing at the top. So you're hacking on that thing at the top and you're wondering why you've got no victory over this or you just keep going back to it because your heart is just sick with all kinds of sin that you're not even dealing with that sometimes you don't even know. Right, and uh, the book has been so helpful on that. So it's not, again, it's 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 very much what Jesus says when he's in Mark chapter seven, Matthew chapter twelve, uh, fifteen, eighteen, when he talks about out of the heart come all these evil deeds, right? Theft, robbery, lying, immorality, uh, debauchery, adultery, all these things that we do, but people try to deal with them on the surface rather than going underneath right? It's like cancer, right? I've known myriads of people that have had cancer and died from cancer in ministry and in, in my own family. And um, the cancer that is internal often manifests itself in other ways, right? It can be, it can be a sickness, it can be flu, it can be sores, it can come out. It comes out in all kinds of ways depending on what type of cancer it is. And if you're only dealing with whatever you see externally, if you're not dealing with that tumor that's inside, you're, it'll never go away. You may be able to deal with it. You, you may be able to get rid of the lesion that's popping out, but it's going to come up in something else. So it is with this sin. Very, very important to not only understand that, but to go on the hunt. And that's really what today's lesson is about, to go on the hunt of that heart context and try to start to nail down specifically where your heart, the impurities of your heart lie. Number four, sexual behavior becomes one way that previous heart idols actualize themselves. So basically what that part was in last week's lesson was talking about sexual behavior is just one way that previous heart idols or other heart idols manifest themselves. It could be other, th- other ways as well. Number five, this is a, just a blanket statement that has been repeated multiple times in different ways, and it's good for us just to ingrain it. Covetousness is at the root of all sexual sin. Greed, lust, covetousness. Colossians 3.5, you should write that next to that to that statement. The Colossians 3.5 just makes that explicitly clear. We did a podcast yesterday where, uh, I think it was yesterday. No, you released one yesterday, I think, where I laid that out in the podcast. I think it was one you released yesterday where I spent some time on one of the podcasts we recorded and I walked um, us through Colossians 3.5 where it just lays that out where covetousness is the whole root of all sexual sin because that's what Colossians 3.5 says. Uh, Number six, craving for personal satisfaction. We talked about this. This is coming up in next week's uh, lesson, but this 
was brought up in chapter 4, craving for personal satisfaction is one major path greed takes in sexual sin. That's going to be the whole lesson next week. But this week's lesson is number seven. Craving for personal solace is another major path greed takes to sexual sin. So in the book, we have turned the corner now, and he is going to drive now these two major paths by which sin often, sexual sin often is manifested. One is in, the, is, is in what's called the hurting heart, and the other is the hungering heart. The hurting heart seeks solace, often in sexual sin. The hungering heart seeks satisfaction, often in sexual sin. And now, because of the good heart work that you have done by identifying your heart and what it is, now you're you're able to go deeper and start to look at yourself and say, do I have more of a hungering heart or more of a hurting heart or a little bit of both? And then you can start to really deal with those, again, those, that heart context and all those sins that you're going to start to see in there and start dealing with them. And this is where the work becomes real. And let me just make a very clear, explicit statement at this point. And I, uh, let me say it this way. I commend all of you. I commend all of you for being here. You men are an encouragement to my heart. You men are encouragement, no doubt, to the Lord if your heart is right before him. But the fact that you're here is huge. On a Thursday night after you worked all day, I get it, right? Like I've been up since wee hours of the morning with you, right? And so the last thing you want to do at 7.30 is come here, sit down, and try to stay awake. I get it, right? But you understand how serious this is, and you're doing it. And many of you are consistent, and some of you I know can't be, so don't take that as a guilt trip. But some of you have been here every week because you're serious about that. I commend you. But let me be really clear, okay? Because I have to deal with this in counseling all the time, and every good counselor says the same thing. At the end of the day, the issue is never knowledge. It's never a knowledge issue, okay? It's always a submission issue. What does that mean? It's never about knowing what to do. It's always about simply doing it. At the end of the day, you coming and sitting in this class and even reading through the notes and reading the book is not going to do anything. It will do nothing for you until you actually start to kill sin. What does that mean? Until you actually start to obey Scripture. It's all about one thing, obedience. Okay? It's not because if you're a believer, it's not because you lack the strength. You don't. That's a lie. It's not because... You don't have the desire. If you're a believer and don't have the desire, you're a contradiction, right? Because to be a believer is to have the desire to live for Christ, right? That's why you're here. So it's not that. It's simply laziness, right? It's simply because you're in love with your sin. There's a myriad of reasons. So at the end of the day, if you really want to be done with this, you've got to be done with it, and you've got to kill it. And so you need to be hearing me remind you of that because sometimes our hearts are so deceptive it's like we come to something like this and think okay why why am i not changing because this isn't the issue i've I've remind our men on saturday mornings um, this is not the battle this is really easy right the battle begins when you leave this place that's where you've got to fight right and so don't ever lose sight of that and so it's very serious just point you to the quotes that I give you each week at the end of your notes. Spurgeon's quote there is so, is so encouraging. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. Oh, that we would live with that. Yeah, so I, I won't 
take any more time for those. You can read those and be encouraged, but that one was worth repeating. All right, on to chapter 5. Here we go. We've already done the chapter review from chapter 4. We have concluded the first part of Dr. Street's book, which focused on the nature of the heart and its passion. That's the first section of the book. That's what he titled it. That's what we've been doing. Let's do a little review now. Write down at least three major lessons you have learned about your heart and its passions from Scripture that has better equipped you to understand and fight against sexual sin. What did you have? Any of you do that? Any of you learn any major lessons up to this point? We finished one whole section of the book. It's been all about your heart. Have there been any major lessons that you have said, yes, this has been helpful, and this is going to equip me to better fight against sexual sin? What would you say? Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So that truth about from Jeremiah 17, 9, about your heart, How does that better equip you to fight sexual sin? Because it's a fact, but how does that fact then drive you to fruitfulness? That's it. It. You nailed it, right? It drives you to the fear of the Lord. It drives you, it drives you away from yourself to the Lord, right? The minute you think you're good, which is what the whole world and most of Christianity teaches you, where do you stay then? Who do you rely on? Who, who do you keep looking to? But when you follow Scripture, as Scripture teaches us, there's no one good, no, not one. And in your flesh, as Paul says, and in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse, what is it, 18, 19, where he says, there's nothing good that dwells within me that is in my flesh. There's nothing good there. What does that do? That drives you to Christ, where all hope is found, right? So it's huge, huge. Good point, Jim. What else? Yes, very good. Excellent. That sounded like some sort of uh, English poet back there. (laughs) Not a plumber, that's for sure. You, you brought plumbers to a whole new level. Yeah, the heart is the birthplace of our thoughts. I tried to say it like he said it. So, yeah, very, very eloquent, James. Yeah, you've been hanging around with your wife a lot. She's rubbing off on you. So that's good. Yeah, absolutely. So what is that? how does that help us then fight sexual sin in a massive way? Because let's be honest, all sexual sin begins with thoughts, evil thoughts, Colossians 3 literally says that. So if the heart is the birthplace of evil thoughts, then where am I going to go to kill those evil thoughts? To the heart, right? Not to the computer screen, to the heart. Huge. Yes, yes. Excellent. Very good. Morgan. Yeah. 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 
Yep, thank you for saying that, Morgan. Yes, Satan is real, and the world is, Satan is real and seeks to overthrow Christ and God and all believers, and the world does as well, but our problem isn't Satan, and our problem isn't the world. Our problem is who? It's us. It's us. The Bible, I mean, the Bible is crystal clear on that. The book is explicitly clear on that. So helpful, right? So helpful. Excellent. What else? Anything else? Yes. Yes. It's never going to stop until it brings its final end, which we looked at that last week in James chapter 1 with the four stages, right? The four stages of sin and how it starts there in the heart and it ultimately comes, it goes from internal to external to what? Death, right? That sin's ultimate desire is to destroy. Destroy you, destroy everything in its path. And, and sin will never be satisfied until destruction comes. Right? And so, again, it's so important to understand that and see that. Yes. Go ahead, Jim. Go ahead, please. Yes, it does. Very good. Yes. How sad is that? Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, destroys people. Yes. Go ahead, Owen. Yes, 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 we've looked at that. We've talked about that a number of times, right? Absolutely. That's good. That's good. Excellent, guys. That encourages me. You're interacting well. Um, Praise the Lord. Okay, um, we have often considered how fighting sexual sin is like dealing with weeds in a garden. Explain what that means by giving the practical steps demanded of every believer in dealing with sin and give the scriptural support to prove it. Byron, you guys who are at Belcroft, you know Byron. Byron, who works at Wabana and who oversees the grounds, he sent me a picture today. They're taking the class and going through everything, and he sent me a long text just how much he's growing and what a joy it is, and he sent me this picture of this of this uh, mulch bed that he's been working on that that has weeds going everywhere, and uh, and they didn't pull them. He was saying, he was pointing to the lessons and he's like, and just how helpful it is. And he's like, and I, and I didn't pull the weeds as I was supposed to. And now they're everywhere. And it's like, yeah, yeah. He said, thank you for the class. It's been really helpful. And that analogy has stuck with him. So, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Go ahead, Dustin. Yes. Yes. You got to pull them, right? And where would you see that in Scripture? You got to pull the weeds, right? You can't just let the weeds go. And just expect them to leave, right? Think about it, right? It's like the robber in your house. And you're like, hey, you want to have breakfast? Right? It's like the guy that came in. <laughs> Buddy likes this story. It's like John MacArthur one day when he came into his office and he opened the door and there was a guy standing there with a pair of gym shorts on, had nothing else on, but he had a pair of gym shorts on, no shirt, no shoes, and a spear in his hand saying that he was sent there to kill him. Clearly, he was mentally struggling. And John MacArthur just said, somebody would like to see you. Just wait. I'll be right back. 
and he went downstairs and got security and said, there's somebody upstairs in my office, right? He didn't leave them there and just said, well, let me study for a little while and you hang out here with me, you know? No, you get, you get them out, right? The guy wants to kill you, you get them out. You just don't live with them. But isn't it amazing? We do that with our sin all the time. There's this alien, there's this alien foe living within us travels with us every day, and we take them along. We feed them. We clothe them. We take care of them. We would never do that, right? You would never let somebody come into your house that's going to harm your family and say, I'm just going to hang out here for a while. Don't mind me. I won't bother you, but maybe twice a month, and in that time, we'll have a little scuffle. But in the meantime, just leave me alone. That's what we do with our sin all the time, right? Same thing with the weeds. We've got to pull them up. Colossians 3, 5, kill sin, Period. Kill it. Pull it up. And then, as Dustin said, you got to sow the seed of truth then to crowd it out. Romans 12. Add more security. There you go. Yeah. And. Yes. Excellent. I had that same verse written down in my notes. So, excellent. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Yep. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Radical amputation. We talked about that last week, right? The step of radical amputation. Most of us coddle sin. We don't kill it. Most of us play with it, right? Most of us, well, let's, I mean, if we're honest, we don't follow what Jesus is teaching there in Matthew 18 is radical, uh, taking sin serious, not playing with it because it will kill you, right? It's like, uh, you know, nobody's going to pick up a copperhead and play with it or a timber rattler, right? You're going to take it serious because the thing will kill you, right? It'll hurt you, and so it is with this, and that's exactly right. Yes, very good, very good. Um, Walking in the Spirit, yes. Yeah, we talked, actually, we talked a lot about that last week. So I'll ask one of you, what did we say walking in the Spirit was? Because we spent quite a bit of time in Galatians 5 last week looking at that. One of it was being in His Word. What's that? One of it was being in His Word. Yes, absolutely. Obedience. Obedience to the Word. Because the Spirit of God speaks how? Through His Word. Yeah, not like Beth Moore video I was looking at earlier today where she was talking about the Lord speaking to her through this, some weird impression that she got about a man that she was supposed to comb his hair. It's the, it was the weirdest, what? most bizarre thing. Yep, yep. She thought God was going to tell. Yeah, she thought God was going to tell him to evangelize. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's sad. But anyway, not like that. He doesn't speak that way. He speaks through his word, right? He speaks through the truth of Scripture. So to walk by the Spirit is to walk according to the Word, is to obey. That's what that means, ultimately. So, good. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yep. Amen. Amen. What a blessing. Um, what is the difference between a person who is miserable because of the consequences of their sin versus a person who is broken because he has come to realize who he has sinned against? What is the difference? We looked at this. One is saved, the other one isn't saved. 
Okay. Yep. Yep. And what else? Yep. Yep. Very good. Very good. Absolutely. One is truly repentant. One is 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 not truly repentant. Yep. Uh, read Second Corinthians seven eight to eleven. We won't do that just for sake of time, but we've done this. And write down and explain at least six marks of genuine repentance versus false repentance. Did you, did you come up with any of those? This is all review because we've looked at this. The, the book deals with this. But this is so vital. What would be some of the marks of true repentance out of 2 Corinthians 7? My sermon on Sunday will deal with some of this. So some of you who are here will be better prepared for that. What are some of the marks of true repentance versus worldly repentance? What would they be? This is huge in dealing. Let me tell you why this is probably one of the most important lessons in the book and dealing with sexual sin. Because it, as a counselor, I have heard this incessantly and hear this all the time. Heard it this week already. Yes, I've repented of that. Can I tell you that most people, when they tell you that, have not repented? They have prayed a prayer. They have sincerely sought some sense of their mind. They're sorry in that sense, but they're not truly repentant. And that's why it's so vital to understand what true repentance is. Um, most people are not repentant. What they are is irritated, saddened, sorry over what their sin has caused, but not over their sin. So a huge difference, massive difference. I dare say most of us are in that camp more often than we want to acknowledge. And it's, it's huge, and we need, to, we need to learn this. So what would be some of the marks of true repentance? Okay, yep, grieving, grieving is part of that. Yep, what else? In, in 2 Corinthians 7, he lines it out very clearly. Somebody open up there. Somebody open up to 2 Corinthians because it would... Go ahead, you got it? Start it... Yep, go ahead. For God who comforts the downcast comforted us by, by coming our tidings. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he, with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing for mourning for the Ephesians, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, Okay, let me pause right here. So he's, he, he wrote a letter. He exhorted them because of their behavior, because of their sin, because of what they were doing. He's exhorting them. He's telling them they're wrong. They need to change this. They need to stop this. The church is, is out of control, disorderly, immorality, wickedness, arguing, fighting, quarrels, dissension. It's just a disaster. So he takes up the task, and then he sends Titus down with the letter. Titus has reported back. And, and he, Titus is talking about the grieving that's going on in the congregation. And Paul is like, good, not that you were grieved, but that you were grieved to a point of repentance. Now he's going to describe their repentance. So instructional here. Go ahead. See what earnest, earnest 
Okay, stop right there. First point, earnestness. What does that mean? See what earnestness this repentance produced within you. What does he mean when he says earnestness? Earnestness for what? They were earnest for what? Okay. More than, more than, more than, no, not, not the sincerity in the sense of their earnestness was not so much salvation, but what? Conviction. Conviction. They were earnest to do what? They, to pursue purity. They were earnest, right? They, was, they were passionate to be pure, to pursue godliness, right? And that's his point. That's why they repented because they're like, oh, we don't want to live like this. We want, to, we want to pursue godliness. So again, a repentance that doesn't come with a desire to pursue godliness is not a repentance. So when you say you repented and you keep doing the same thing and nothing about your life changes. So you say, I've repented, and you know, don't read your Bible. You're not praying. You're not pursuing the accountability with others. You're not in, in the Scriptures. And you haven't repented. There's no earnestness in pursuing godliness, okay? That's what he, that's what he means there. Now keep going. The next one. Okay, what does he mean there? An eagerness to clear yourself. What's he talking about? Yes, right? Your reputation. Your reputation as an immoral person, as a wicked person, as a, to, you know, you've hurt people, whatever it is, whether it's the fighting, the quarrels, the immorality, there's, a, there's a, a, an eagerness, an earnestness to clear that, to be done with that, to right the wrong. If I've hurt somebody, I want to fix this. I don't, I'm not going to sweep it under the carpet, right? Which again, let's be honest, in our repentance, right? It's just like, Lord, I have sinned. I hope nobody else is around, but Lord, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Okay, we're done. There's no earnestness, right? N- meanwhile, I've disrespected my brother. I've talked back to the elders. I've walked on uh, the, the, the backs of my wife. I've, I've neglected my children, but we go in our closet and pray and ask God to forgive us, and then we're done. No, if you're truly broken, man, you're going to everybody who has been affected and saying, man, I need to fix this. This is wrong. Please forgive me, right? When, like, again, now, when was the last time we did that? You know, you start to see how little true repentance really comes out. And these, what he's talking about is you want to clear your name. You want, to, you want this to be done. Go ahead. Keep going. That's the second mark. Indignation. What is that? Anger. Anger for what? True repentance always comes with anger. Anger at what? Exactly. A holy hatred of sin. Can I tell you why I say with such confidence that there's actually little true repentance that goes on today in the church? Because there's little holy hatred of sin. If there was genuine repentance, people would be hating sin. But again, most of us don't. There's not that indignation of sin where it's just like, I hate this stuff. I'm done with this. I can't stand this anymore. I'm done with this in our world. I'm done with this in our church. I'm done with this in my life. I can't stand it. But when was the last time you've heard that? Like, when was the last time you saw that? When was the last time you had that zeal within you and said, I'm finished with this. I can't stand it. Again, most of us, we don't have that. We have a hatred for what it brings. But that's back to that worldly Grief that leads to death. Go ahead, keep going. What fear? What fear? What's he talking about? Fear of what? 
fear of the Lord, right? He's going to bring this up. In, uh, he's already brought it up in verse 1 of chapter 7. He's going to bring it up again, right? This reality of awe and respect for God. This is where the rubber meets the road in true repentance. When you are truly repentant, you are Psalm 51 against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. And that's a scary place to be. Because you understand the holy wrath of God, but you also understand it's against you and you alone that I have sinned. And that breaks your heart more than anything because you have sinned against your creator and your Lord. What else? Keep going. Longing for what? After you you have the fear of the Lord for, for breaking his heart, breaking his law, breaking all that he's done, disrespecting him, then what's the longing? reconciliation, right? You want to be back. You want to restore. You want to be back. Because again, again, because we live in such an easy believism culture in our churches where we just preach this simple gospel of just make a claim that you know Christ and everything is well and God loves you, this brokenness over sin never happens, right? But there is, and this was, goes all the way back to the beginning part of the book where he talks about parental um, parental um, justification and relational justification and parental reconciliation and, and, and uh, this reality of uh, judicial justification. Judicially, we are never separated from God as believers. But as our Heavenly Father, we are separated. And those of us who have children understand this really clearly, especially when they become teenagers and they do foolish things and it breaks your heart. And you're sitting there looking at your children and you're just longing to have that relationship restored with them. It, that they'll get broken over their, the way they talk to you so that you can actually be in a right relationship and your heart is broken. That's the way it is with the Lord. They're still my children when they do that. I'm still in relationship with them, but it's not right. It's not the same. So it is with our Heavenly Father, right? But the easy believism says, ah, it's okay. God's forgiven you everything. It's all good. There's no problem. Well, somebody that teaches that needs to read Hebrews 12 because God plays no joke with sin and he disciplines those he loves. And that's not easy for him to do. He's our heavenly father, right? And so it is with us in true repentance. We come to that realization and we want to be restored. And that's what you see so beautifully with David in Psalm 51. He just wants to come back and be in a right relationship with the Lord no matter what it takes. Again, I ask you, when was the last time? When was the last time that was a mark of your repentance? Right? You, see, you see the difference there. We are just so superficial and, and shallow in so much of this that and then we wonder why we're struggling with it. Again, my prayer for this class and for all of us, myself first and foremost, is that we would truly be broken over our sin through what we're learning. And we would have this longing. And then what's the last one? Or there's two more to go. Zeal. Passion to praise the Lord. Passion to get back into service, right? Remember, remember Psalm 51? How many times did David say, Lord, if you'll do this, if you'll restore to me the joy of my salvation, if you'll bring me back in that right relationship, what, what does he say? I'll teach evildoers your way. I'll teach everyone the fear of the Lord. He just wants to worship the Lord and serve the Lord. This zeal to be back in his service, back in his worship. Absolutely. And then lastly, Greg, punishment. Say, how's it say in the text? What punishment? Noticed in my home when you say it this way, there are no buts. No, no ifs, there's no buts, there's no ands. True repentance 
never brings excuses. It never brings ultimatums. It never brings agendas. Lord, I'm repentant. Can you take this away from me now? Lord, I truly am done with this. Can you be done? Can I be done with this? No, this is the consequences of your sin. Deal with it. You've earned this. This is the wages. True repentance takes the punishment, whatever it is, doesn't seek the way out, and just says, this is, this is it. I'll take it joyfully. That's true repentance. Again, that's uh, often not what we do in the midst of our sin. We flippantly sin and then we whimsically repent. And what we've just worked through is there's nothing whimsical about any of that. And so, so vital, so important. So we've, this is just a review, just a review. Any questions about that in the review? I wanted to, there's more I've skipped over, uh, but that's a, that's a healthy review of where we've been. Yes, yes, the first hour is the review, the last 10 minutes is the, is the sermon, thank you, yes. Yeah, yep, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that my children know that I, I despise the term sorry. I say it's meaningless. It means nothing. Sorry for what? What does that even mean? Like it's, it, it has no weight to it. It has no explanation to it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's just a soft way for you to admit you're wrong. No, just tell me you were wrong. If you're wrong, say it. Admit it. Repent. Again, 1 John 1, 9 the word for confess there, hamalageo, literally means to say the same thing that God says about your sin. God never calls your sin sorry, right? He calls your sin wicked. He calls it what it is. Lord, so but when I'm teaching my children, I'm like, what did you do? When, you're, when they're even confessing to one another. No, tell your brother, tell your sister what you did. Why are you sorry? What did you do to them? Just teaching them to take it serious, to be clear. That's the way we should be with God. He sees it, and that is a further tool to help break us. Yes, good point, Greg. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a couple. Yes, there's a yes. Yes. The answer to your question is yes. But the feeling, he's, the question was, is there a feeling that comes with true forgiveness? Emotional. Is there an emotion? And the answer is yes, but that emotion is built upon an understanding of the truth, right? So oftentimes people are searching for the emotion and that's all wrong. Your motivation is wrong. It's, it's again right back to where the lesson really is going with this whole idea of the hurting heart that's seeking what? Solace. And so you're just going to God because you can't deal with conviction. 
The conviction of the Holy Spirit is hurting you. That's what the whole point of conviction is. And you just want that to stop. Well, that's not really the motivation you should have. You should want it to be done because of the reality of what sin has caused, but not the feeling that it's brought, right? It's separated you and God in that relational parental sense. And you should want that restored because God matters to you, not not the way that you felt. That goes right back to the last point about the punishment. If I've got to feel this way, then so be it. But, Lord, I just want to be in your presence. I want to know that we are right. That should be what drives us to our knees and drives us to ask for repentance or to drive us to repentance. But when we do that, yes, when we do that and grow in the truth of what God has promised and does in that he wipes away all sin and, and continues to wipe it away even in that parental relational sense, then that is where the emotion, which would be Philippians chapter 4, like verse 8, where it's the peace of God that passes all understanding. That's an emotional peace because peace has three senses to it as well. It has a judicial fact that you have peace with God. That's Romans 5. And then you have this emotional sense of peace, which is Philippians 4, 8, the peace of God that passes all understanding. That's that emotional where you're just like, all is well. All is well. Yeah, but see, again... Yes, and you, can, and you can be, actually many people are, forgiven and not have that. And that's part of what counseling is, is helping people who have an over, overly sensitive conscience to their sin, and they have truly repented, and a good counselor will evaluate that and say, well, you've, you've done this, okay, tell me more, you've done that, okay, you've done this, do you believe this, yep. And they're still just beating themselves up, and you're just like, no, 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 now let's go to Scripture, You've done this. Look at what God's word says. You are forgiven. You are freed. You've got to stop thinking that. So absolutely, yeah. And that's, again, but what drives that is truth, not the feeling. And so you have to train your heart to be driven by the truth so that it feels correctly, not driven by the elation of whatever the thought is. But good good question. Good question. Yeah. All right. Let's go into uh, number two here and just skip around here a little bit. All right, the f- now remember, we're in this section of the book now. We're out of, of conflicting our hearts, or should I say confronting our hearts like crazy. We've done that enough now. Now he's going to take us down this path of really looking at these motivations in our heart that are really driving this specific path of the hurting heart, which I think this is so helpful. These next chapters are so practical, so helpful, and probably for all of us, I would say, is new material on many levels, so, so encouraging. The first couple questions here, we're not going to, because of the time, I don't want to look up the verses, I just want to make sure you understand the distinction here. Um, what is the distinction between the, the body and the soul? What is, that's, what the, that's what those first questions I wrote down here, and I gave you a plethora of verses to look up. What is the distinction that you have to understand between the body and the soul or the heart and the mind, which is somewhat synonymous there? I'll I'll explain that in a minute. But what is the distinction you have to understand there? One is what and one is another. Go ahead, Jim. Yes, very good, excellent. So Jim nailed it, right? The body is flesh, it's, it's material by way of fleshly. It's, it's, it's prone to uh, 
devastation. It's prone to decay. It's, prone, it's physical. It's prone to fading away. Oh, that's how the body is described, the, the, the earthly body, not the heavenly body. That's the glorified body. It's different. But the earthly body, right? And then the soul or the heart and the mind, and, and those, are, those are terms that get used at times synonymously, and yet there's a distinction. Sometimes in Scripture, the soul is speaking of just the, the whole body and life in totality, and sometimes it's speaking of the same thing as the heart and the mind. Sometimes it's speaking of... So you've got to understand it in its context. But most often, it's when, when you see like in Matthew 22 where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's speaking of just a totality of everything that is within you. It's not three different parts of man. It's just saying that's the core of who you are. Your soul, your heart, your mind, everything. Okay? But the distinction is important because Why? Because one is spiritual, right, and one is earthly. One is immaterial, one is material. One is going to last forever, one is not going to last forever. But with those two realities, they feed off of one another. And that's when you're fighting sexual sin, you can't lose sight of this. The mind feeds the body and the body feeds the mind, right? And you see this all the time. And he, he talked about this in the book. And it's important as you start dealing with um, these the hurting heart, you have to understand how the physical body and the, and the spiritual mind or the heart are intertwined in this complex unity of body and spirit or body and soul. And so that you have to keep that in mind because your heart will often be triggered by your body. I mean, we just, Craig literally just asked a question that proved it. He was talking about emotions, right? Emotions driven by something physically that happened. Right, And you see how the physical reality or the, the sickness of an emotional heart, the feeling sick or, or, or blue or down, that physical reality is driven by something spiritually that's not right, and they go hand in hand. And that's why counseling is so important and why people will even, I mean, Psalm 32, you can pull up Psalm 32, and David says so clearly that he was physically sick his bones were wasting away, his stomach was inside out, he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat. Why? Because he didn't confess his sin. So his spiritual relationship with God was broken and his physical life was in a mess. They go hand in hand. They relate to one another. It's so important to see that. So it's not simply on the negative by way of the sin spiritually affects the life physically, but it's also in the negative where the body physically can affect the mind spiritually. So you visually see something, a billboard, right? All of a sudden, because you physically saw it, now your mind spiritually is racing off to the races, right? And so you have this intertwining between the two, and that's important. And that's why in the middle of that uh, series of questions, it says there's an undeniable connection between, and the filler is, between the, um, the mind and the body. And so you just need to, or the heart and the body, or the soul and the body. And that's important. Okay, what is at the core of sexual sin? The covetous heart, we've seen that. The expression of greed can manifest itself in negative and affirmative motivations. The negative motivations correspond to the circumstances in life when your heart is what? When your heart is what? When your heart is seeking solace, right? Seeking comfort. Um, greed will direct your heart to covet a sexual pain reliever in search of what? 
in search of comfort, search of solace, right? Sex will become like the Tylenol that you take to cover some sort of pain that you're dealing with. The person who is marked by these negative motivations is usually running in what direction? I wrote this in my book as I was going through this multiple times. When you're dealing with these negative motivations, how many negative motivations are we going to deal with quickly here tonight? How many? Four. What are they? Somebody give them to me. Do you remember them? Go ahead. Anger. Yep, there. Those four. These aren't the only four, but these are, these are very common, right? So this reality of anger, self-pity, discontentment, and fear. These come up all the time in sexual sin, all the time, more than you will ever imagine. And as you learn these, if you're doing the work, you'll be shocked at how much you'll see this in your own heart in different ways in different times. Chapter 7, which we'll double up chapters next week, the whole chapter is about you investigating your heart and asking questions about these. And it's... It's pretty serious, but so helpful, the biblical stress test, so helpful. So we've got these four motivations. The first one is anger, and anger, right? When somebody has these negative motivations, anger, self-pity, discontent, and fear, which direction are they running in? They're running what? They're running away from something. When you're, when you're involved in sexual sin it, that's motivated by one of these things, you're running away from something whether you were molested as a child, whether you were disrespected as a child, whether, whatever it is, you're running to get away. You're running into sin to find comfort, solace. You're trying to get away. What you're going to find next week when we look at the affirmative motivations, right, the ones that are more driven by your desire, that you're not running away from anything. You're running to it, right? This is so helpful as you fight these sins and think about this. So helpful. All right. Um, Go ahead. I don't know. It's like sexual sin is a coping mechanism. Yes, it's a pain reliever. For the person with the hurting heart, sexual sin is one of those forms of a pain reliever. Yeah. Yeah, just like people who cut themselves, which is a major issue, right? Why would somebody create more pain? Because it's a stress relief for them. It's that pain is taking away their other pain, whatever it is. And so for them, it's a coping mechanism. And so people will cut themselves. Very common. Very common. It's hard for us, you know, to fathom that. But, that's, but it's the same as this. And so this reality of sexual sin is a coping mechanism. Coping mechanism. Yep. Habits. Remember what we started learning last week? Habits. So in the book, uh, Frederick comes up again. Our, 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 our poor guy, Frederick, right, who's been very helpful. If, yeah, I'm going to like write a letter to Frederick and say thank you for opening your life because his, his life has been such a good example as far as illustration for us. So in Frederick's life, anger proved to be the motivator for his whole fetish with self-satisfying sex, right, with himself, right? What drove all of that wasn't simply a desire to feel a certain thing. It was a desire to escape a specific thing. And that started before he had even hit puberty because he was raised in a home where they fought all the time, his mom and dad. So he escapes 
away when his parents start fighting, locks himself in the closet, and gets out his comic books. And he escapes into that. And what was he doing? He was, I mean, he's a kid, so he didn't even know what he was doing. But in his heart, he's forming a habit. Every time there's anger, every time there's a problem and I get angry, this is what I'm going to do to relieve it. So he starts forming habits as a young boy, right? Then he hits puberty. Comic books are just no longer cutting it. Gets his hands on a playboy. Now he's doing the same thing. Mom and dad are fighting. I'm going to my happy place. He locks himself in the closet, pulls out the playboys. He's doing exactly what he's been doing for years. But now he's just got a different stimuli. It's no longer a a, a storyline that he can escape in. Now it's a figure of a woman. And now he takes that to the next level. That's how this anger works in motivating people to sexual sin. And it can do the same thing with us. And so on page uh, two, on, on series of questions number three, here we go. The author says that indulging the sex drive becomes what for the perceived loss of the lust-driven person? Don't miss this. The author says that indulging the sex drive becomes what for the perceived loss of the lust-driven person? It's exactly what Frederick was doing. And what is the key word missing there? Becomes what? Here you go. Compensation. Compensation. I, I did not get something I deserved And so now I'm going to go over here and do this. And that is huge, huge. One of the motivations to sexual sin for the unrefined, idolatrous, hurting heart is anger. While not all anger is sin, many times it clearly is in the Bible, and it leads into deeper transgression. The Bible is clear that unrighteous anger does not produce what? James chapter 1. It does not produce godliness or the righteousness of God, right? The righteous desire, the righteous plan. Anger will, will, does not, the anger, this is the unrighteous anger, the unholy anger. There's holy anger, which we looked at already in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, right? This indignation, hatred of sin. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about this anger that we most often deal with, which is driven by selfishness. And anger will never produce godliness. It will never produce the righteousness of God. Sinful anger is the byproduct of what in the life of the person? Genesis 4, 5 is dealing with who? Did you look that up? Cain, who was an angry man. And he was angry because of what? James 4, 1 and 2 is about what? Sad passage about this church. Deals with this so clearly. What does it say in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? Who has that? Look this up. People get angry because of what? Covetousness, unfulfilled covetousness. They didn't get what they want, right? Like, like, just like our children, right? Our babies, our toddlers, or whoever, right? They don't get what they want. The <laughs> hunter, <laughs> hunter. He doesn't get what he wants. He wants Christian's toys, and Christian wants to play with his toys. Christian's been playing with Hunter for three hours, and now Christian wants a few minutes to go play by himself, right? And that's fine. And Hunter just like flips out. <laughs> You know, his brother's been playing with him for hours, right? And his brother just wants a little break, right? And as soon as Christian even makes a hint of hesitation to walk away, right? He's angry. He's lashing out. Why? He doesn't get what he wants. Just just like us. And we see that all the time. So Cain in Genesis 4, right? 
man marked by deep anger. Why? He didn't get what he wanted. He wanted praise from God for the sacrifice that he brought, and he didn't get it, and immediately he's angry, right? And so it is with the churches that James is writing to. It's so scary. Anger is often characteristic of who? Those passages in Proverbs. This is scary. The fool, right? How often we play the fool in our anger. Well, and yeah, scary. Yeah. Anger is very destructive and often sows its own consequences. What does that mean? Anger is very destructive and often causes and sows its own consequences. What does that mean? Yeah. Yes. We do things that hurt others, hurt ourselves, right? The guy, the guy. I remember, I remember one guy who's a dear brother of mine now, and, and just uh, I wish I could tell you stories about him, but that who uh, wanted nothing to do with anything. Uh, as I was teaching, we were in Bible college together, and he was younger, and he would come hang out with me, and they're young married couple, and he would ask me all these questions about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and every time he asked me a question, he would get mad at me. So finally, I just stopped telling him he'd ask me a question I'm like I'm not going to tell you because you're going to get mad again and we would have these conversations for years and I'll never forget one time <laughs> he was so mad that he he hit the wall cinder block wall he hit it as hard as he could and like messed up his hand that's what anger does brings its own consequences right L- lose self-control and you hurt yourself or you hurt others and that's what that's what anger does and uh, he since has learned the true doctrine of uh, biblical doctrine and embraces it with all joy and actually his his speaking of sexual sin his sad story in the world his wife uh, had an affair on him and uh, he uh, he suffered through that trying to be and not trying was a godly man and uh, prayed for her and waited for her for five years and she drug him through the mud and I helped counsel him at, by his request through some of that and and he 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 was faithful all the way through till she eventually filed for a divorce and it was so sad and she was the cause of the whole thing um but he told me he told me uh years later in that he said had i not come to believe in the sovereignty of god i would have committed suicide shows you the power of sound doctrine yeah because he was raised in a in a theological system that denied that as most people are raised that way. And uh, the Lord was kind and gracious to bring him to a point where he saw the truth for what it was. And that is a massive, listen, and that little story wasn't planned, but that fits so clearly here because how do you deal with anger when somebody has hurt you, right? Oftentimes our anger is not driven by just a fact that we didn't get what we wanted, but that somebody hurt us, right? And, and we're provoked because somebody hurt me, hurt my family, whatever. And it was their sin, not my sin, right? So sometimes our anger is provoked by somebody else's sin. A child gets molested. That's not the child's fault. And they live with that all their life. But sooner or later, they have to respond to the other person's sin, not with more sin, but with truth, right? And it's so important. That's one of the ways you deal with that, is not bringing more sin upon sin, but bringing truth in dealing with sin, and that's not easy, but that's, that's one of the ways we, we deal with it. Um, 
All right, anger, anger. Um, how should we respond biblically to the perceived hurts and disappointments, either past or present, so as to guard our hearts? Proverbs 4.23. What are, what are, I gave you a number of verses there that were really, really helpful. What are some of the ways we can respond biblically to these perceived hurts so that we don't fall prey to this anger and be more susceptible to sexual sin? What would be some of those ways to guard our hearts? I just gave you one <laughs> in the story. What would be some ways to guard our hearts against this and help others? Sound doctrine, right? Remember the character of God. That's Lamentations 3, 21 to 24, and all those verses in Lamentations. John 16, 33. I'm going to be talking about this in our Gamma uh, Grace, uh, Grace Advanced Mid-Atlantic Conference in October at Hope Bible. I'll be speaking on one of the breakout sessions. The whole conference is on suffering, and I'm going to speak on John 16, 33, and dealing with this reality of building in your life a theology of suffering understanding suffering's place in your life and how that protects you from having a wrong response of anger or self-pity, which we'll look at in a minute. And so John 16, 33, Jesus says, declares emphatically, in this world, you will have trouble, right? Like that rattles off our lips, but how sadly most of us have never embraced the truth of that verse. Because when trouble comes, what do we do? We fall apart. We just fall apart and we're just like, oh, Lord, woe is me. And we're like, really? I was talking with somebody this week and they're like, pastor, it's so hard. And I said, no, you're wrong. What you are dealing with is not hard. It's only hard because your heart is hard. I said, let me tell you what's hard. What's hard is the believer who's in uh, Indonesia who has to put his head on the chopping block every day as a Christian. And where he goes out to work, then they're being killed every day in India, right? Like crazy. And, th and they're being killed because they're a Christian. That's hard when you leave your family every morning not knowing if you're going to come home because you're a Christian. That is hard. What you're talking about is not hard. But our hearts, like, trick us. It's so hard. No, it's not hard. Stop that. Stop it, right? That's the way we are. Jesus was clear. In this world, you're going to have trouble, man. Grow up and deal with it. And understand that this is even part of the gospel. Philippians, I give it to you there, Philippians 1, 29 to 30. Again, because we have such pithy preaching on the gospel, most people don't understand that the gospel call is a call to suffer. Right? When was the last time you heard that? That God calls us to suffer. That's literally what he says. That's what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, an emblem of death, and follow me. Jesus never sugarcoated. He was never ambiguous about it. The call of the gospel is not prosperity, right? It's death. That is the call of the gospel. And if we truly embrace that, when the suffering comes, it doesn't make it easier, but it does put it in perspective. Put it in perspective. Go ahead. Yes. Amen. You see what God has done rather than what's happening to you. Amen. Amen. Right? The greatest killjoy to anger is gratitude. Right? You want to kill anger? Start praising God. Start singing. You cannot be angry and thanking God in song at the same time. It will not coexist. One is going to overtake the other. 
right? That's why memorizing hymns and songs is so helpful. So you start getting angry, just start praising the Lord for who, who he is and what he's done. Absolutely. Just it puts anger in its place. So important. All right, that's the first motivation. Second one, the idolatrous heart is often motivated by self-pity. This we can move through a little bit quicker because it feeds off of anger. In many ways, anger is more of the aggressive nature to uh, the hurting heart. Self-pity is more the passive, right? Self-pity. What is self-pity? You tell me. Because I think we deal with this in some ways, maybe in the church, we deal more with self-pity than we do anger. And, and let, let, me, let me just be really clear. They're just two different sides of the same coin. That's all it is. So the pagan world, we see their anger all the time, right? With us in the Christian world, it's not anger, it's self-pity. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it is, right? Self-pity, greed. Yeah, what does that mean? Greed for what? Yes, that's it. That's the key word right there. That's the key word with the hurting heart. The hurting heart is driven by that word, that D word, if you will. You hear Christian now. Dad, you said the D word. <laughs> One night, was like, I saw his face turn white. We're at the dinner table, and he said, I'm like, son, what's wrong? He said, Dad, you said a bad word. I'm thinking, what did I say? I'm like, tell me what I said. No, I can't say it. Like, what did you say? What did I say? He said, you said the S word. I'm thinking, what's that? And I said, stupid. And he was talking about that it was, it, it was, it was in relationship to a sermon, that Sunday sermon. And he, we were talking about it, and that's when he got all white. And I had used stupid from the pulpit. And he was, he was just, and I'm thinking, oh, how many kids think their pastor's up in the pulpit cussing because he said the word stupid, right? But that's, that's all right. And we corrected that and talked about it. But yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he called me out. Yeah, because he called me out. So I wanted to make sure all the kids, you know, understood that. But, yeah, it's a humbling thing to be called out by your 10-year-old. But uh, it happens. It happens. But the reality, right, of self-pity is it plagues us. It plagues us on so many, so many levels. What is the issue with this idea of deserving? Explain that. And, and explain why self-pity is driven by this thought of deserving it's, it, it's not, it, anger is driven by I deserve something. Self-pity is driven by what? I don't deserve what's happened to me, right? Self-pity is, because it's, self-pity is driven by suffering. It's driven by trials. It's driven by pain. It's driven by rejection. It's driven by uh, something bad has happened to you, and so your woe is me. And it's driven by I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. And that's what's, that's what's driving it. So, yes, spot on, Morgan. So because that happened to me, now that I have a free get-out-of-jail card to go over and do whatever it is that I'm going to do, and in this context, it's sexual sin. So because I was wronged, and you very well could have been wronged, like it could have been sin that drove you into this place, but because of their sin, now I have the freedom to go do this, and that's where the phrase comes up all the time, and I'm confident it's never come up in your heart, but God understands me. God knows my heart. He, He understands the pain I'm in, so he sees 
me relieving myself in this area over here and he's compassionate towards me. I'm entitled to it, right? Yes, you've become God in this. Yep, you've created what's right and wrong. Now, again, I'm skipping through here just because of time. You tell me how that anger we've looked at, self-pity, how does that motivate sexual sin? How does that become a heart context by which the idol of sexual sin is fleshed out in your life? How can that be? How can self-pity be, be the uh, motivator there? You, you tell me. Give me some examples. Give me an illustration. Give me something. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. What else? Okay. Yep. So it's got to be. It's got to be dealt with. It's got to be. It's got to be right. Right. The heart's got to be balanced. The heart demands appeasement. Yep. Yep. Okay. Give me specifics on how self-pity will open you up, make you more susceptible. That's, that's the word. Tell me how self-pity in your life will... No, let's back it up. Let's make it even more clear. Tell me how self-pity often gets manifested in your life. I gave you specific examples in Scripture. We looked at, and if you looked up the verses, I gave you an example of Moses. I gave you an example of Asaph. I gave you an example of Elijah. I gave you an example of somebody else that just slipped in my mind. Jonah. Four examples, biblical examples of self-pity right there. Moses, Elijah, Asaph, and Jonah. Four clear examples of self-pity. How does self-pity in, those, in the lives of those men or in our lives get, come out? You tell me. What are some specific ways in which we manifest self-pity even as believers? I didn't get that promotion. There you go. Let's. I deserve that promotion. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Unmet expectation prepared the way now for this anger. And then when you talk to everybody, it's like, woe is me, Pastor, pray. And it's always couched in, Pastor, will you pray for me? I didn't get that promotion. You know, yeah, we go through that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a practical. What else? Give me practical ways. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Whether it's a standard of living, right? Well, why don't I have that? I've been working hard. I've never missed a day at work. And look at this guy. I listen to the way he talks at church. And look, and he's got four cars and five boats and three motorcycles. And I got a horse, you know? And it's like, what was, I mean, point of exaggeration to prove it's hyperbole, but you get the point, right? What else? Psalm 73, if you didn't do the work, you should go back and look at it. Psalm 73 is Asaph. And what does he say there? He's watching the wicked. He's looking at the wicked prosper. And he literally is frustrated. And he's going, Lord, why are they prospering and we're not? Why are they healthy and we're not? Why are they having all this stuff and we're not? And he's just complaining and grumbling and just whining. And literally he says, and I almost lost my way. 
Like he, he almost got to the point where he, there was no turning back. He was so confused about comparing his life with that of the wicked. And then it says, and then I remembered the end of the wicked and my senses came back to me. And it was like, whoa, yeah. Jonah, right? Jonah and the plant, right? Woe is me, Lord. Ah, you gave me the plant. Now I'm shaded. I'm just waiting for you to hellfire and brimstone's going to come down on these Ninevites. And then God sends the worm, right? Miraculous worm. Man, that must have been some worm. In like minutes, he eats the plant and the thing like, it must have been like a steel or Husqvarna worm where he just chews that thing in half and it's just like over, right? And then Jonah does what? Oh, I just literally, right? Just kill me, Lord. That's what he says. Just kill me, Lord. What? Are you kidding me? What are you, what's your problem? You see it? Moses, same thing. It's like, Lord, why did you choose me to lead these wicked people out of Israel? I can't take this anymore. I mean, you think godly men aren't susceptible? All of us. Now, how does that make you susceptible to sexual sin? What does that do in your heart? Okay, it's, it's, there's pain in your heart. Yes. So you, instead of running to God, you run to sexual sin. Yep. You run to the desires that are already there in your heart. Yep. You Very good. Focused. Yes. Again, yes. All about the stuff. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. Totally, totally. And the hurting heart is seeking comfort. It's seeking solace. It's seeking, it's seeking to be done with the pain. Rather than, what's the biblical response? Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which we've looked at multiple times about Israel being the example that we should not follow in their idolatry and immorality. And he goes through the diatribe of Exodus 32 and Numbers 25 and that sexual escapade with them. And Paul is like, do not follow their example. Do not follow their example. Then he encourages us in long about verse 14 of chapter 10, where he says, no temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God will always be faithful to provide you a way out that you may what? Endure it. Think about the difference of the biblical view in the midst of, and, and, and again, I'm not denying that hurt comes into our life, and I, I don't want to give you the, the list of all the times that I've been hurt wrongly by people. As a pastor, that's not uncommon. And so, but I have no right to be self-pity. I endure through that biblically, as we are all called to. But what we always want is to be out of it. And that is never the biblical response. It's never the biblical perspective. It's to endure in it. And notice that the way of escape isn't to get out of it. It's the, it's the uh, strength to stand in it. That's a totally different perspective. And when that's your perspective, you're not susceptible to sexual sin or any sin for that matter. Go ahead, Jim. No. It's one of our biggest downfalls. Yes.
Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that whole that whole analogy that you painted, which we all relate to, isn't it interesting that it's the external that was that's the focus, but it's the internal. That's the reality. Remember, you never you are never more than who you are in your heart. But we're always focused on the external. Like this is who I am. This is who I am. No, this is who you are. That's what's so hard about the Bible. Right. Because it's constantly pushing us away from the external and to the internal and opening our eyes. And that's how we deal with self-pity. Go ahead. That's it. You're, you're spot on. That's exactly what drives it. How, how scary is that for multiple reasons, right? Not only that you think you know what's best and God doesn't, right? And that somehow you're going to aggressively go against the will of God and sin so boldly, right? I mean, that just shows you how deceived our hearts are, right? And how wrong that is. You're not me. You're not my shoes. You don't understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the that's one of the uh, heart, uh, one of the lies of self pity, that your problem is unique, isn't it? Right. That's how we end up there. Woe is me! Right. Let's go back and do the homework. These verses are in there for a reason. Elijah, it's the Elijah complex. There's nobody else, Lord, but me. And Lord's like, get out of here. I got five thousand that haven't bowed the knee. Stop your complaining. Right? I mean, think about it. Right? There's the man of God who just, don't miss, lose sight of this, just won the greatest battle of his life against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? Comes off the victory and then self-pity because a wicked woman is out to kill him. And he just stood before hundreds of false prophets mocking them and God sends fire from heaven. And one woman comes after him and he runs scared. It's like, come on, man. But he was focused on self. Focused on self. It's crazy, right? Crazy. Notice uh, on the bottom of your notes, in the, in the, on page 133, because this book was so, has been so prolific and its teachings, not all of it, but some of its teachings not helpful in building this whole idea of self-pity in marriages. And it's the Gary Chapman book, The Five Love Languages, and Dr. Street references it in an in a, in a off-handed quote but he doesn't say it explicitly, but I'm coming out and saying it explicitly to help you. He talks about the empty love tanks. You ever heard that? My love tanks not fill. Of course you've heard it. Every church has been seduced into that thinking that's just, it's secular psychology that is so, it breeds self-pity, right? Where husbands and wives are going around and talking to each other. You haven't filled my love tank. Come on now, my love tank's this. Yeah, I like affirmation, so come on, affirm me, right? I forget what they were, but there was like five different ones. And it was like everybody, what, promoting themselves. It was all about me. Like, think about it, right? And churches embrace this stuff. It shows you how scary it is. Rather than what the Bible says, it's not about me, it's about you. 
How can I encourage you? How can I? It's just like, no, no. That whole thing breeds that self-pity, that self-focused mindset. Be careful of that trap. Do not at all uh, fall into that. So what are some ways we can fight against self-pity? Suffering is universal problem. Suffering is part of the gospel. Suffering is necessary part of my sanctification. Suffering uh, makes me long for heaven. Suffering drives me to Christ. Suffering is not even close to what I deserve. So ask yourself this question when you start to get filled with self-pity. God, what do I really deserve? And if you're honest with yourself, you will immediately turn to praise because you'll be going, whew, what I'm getting is really not that bad. Changes your whole perspective. Question five. Absolutely. Absolutely. The next one was discontentment, right? Discontentment. Discontentment is another motivation in the hurting heart. This is huge. It comes up all the time, right? Um, what, is, what does that mean? You're not content with your lot. That's it. You're not content with your wife. You're not content with your home, your car, your church, your, your job, your your own physical makeup, your own whatever, right? It's, it, it drives, it comes up in many different ways, right? Amen. Yep. Why is discontentment, now don't miss this, man. Why is discontentment the natural inclination of your heart almost incessantly? What is it? And the Bible is clear about this, and you need to get this if, as you fight sexual sin. What is it about your heart that will always drive you to discontentment? I gave you the verses. Okay, greed, yes, but there's more, it's more than that. There's something about your heart. Think of, think of it this way. Think of it this way. We looked at it last week, but Solomon had how many wives and how many concubines? 700 concubines. And you got it, Rob. Say it loud. Never, your heart is never satisfied apart from Christ. Your heart is never satisfied. Proverbs 27, 20, right? I've, I've used that verse, I think, probably six or seven times since we started this class. You ought to memorize it, and it literally says that, right? Your heart is never satisfied. Your eyes will never be satisfied. You'll never not be longing for another woman that's more beautiful than the last one you looked at right? You will never, ever be satisfied. That's why everybody who jumps into sexual sin, it starts with lust in their heart. It moves to looking through their eyes. It moves to then building fantasies in their mind. Then it moves to some sort of act, usually self-induced acts upon themselves in the quietness of their own room or wherever. Then it moves into some sort of manipulation, which often moves into molestation, which often moves into physical rape, and that's how it goes. And it just keeps going, ultimately, to homosexuality, to bestiality. It just doesn't stop until it destroys you. That's the way it works. Why? Why is that progression? Because the heart will never be satisfied. Once you go down that path of sin, it will never be satisfied. Why do drug addicts do what they do? Why is marijuana not enough, right? We're legalizing marijuana. Well, just wait. If we live long enough, it'll be legalizing cocaine. It'll be legalizing crack. It'll be because it'll never be enough. That's how it works, right? 
That's how it works. That's how the drug addict starts smoking pot, then he moves to cocaine, then he moves to crack, then he moves to heroin till he dies. Why? Because it's never enough. And the Bible says that explicitly, crystal clear. And discontentment is no joke. How does discontentment often manifest it in our lives? What, what is a telltale sign of discontentment that comes outwardly, that our hearts are discontent, our lives are discontent? How can we tell? Say it. Complaining. You can always tell when you're discontent because you will complain. You will grumble. And again, I give you the verses. I'm skipping through here, but you see this throughout the Scriptures. People grumbling, people complaining. That is one of the telltale signs of discontentment, the complaining Grumbling heart. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. And, and all that is is a subtle way of complaining. Why can't I? Yeah, yeah, yep. We complain far more than we, than we want to admit, which is so scary, so scary. Um, now, before we move this, what is uh, the most misquoted, one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible is Philippians 4. Uh, 12 and 13, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is probably, I, I don't know if it's the most, but I would dare say it probably is the most mis. Well, maybe Jeremiah, Jeremiah, um, yeah, yeah, Jeremiah 19. I have the plans. I know the plans I have for you. 29. Yeah, that verse, that verse is probably the most misquoted. But anyway, Philippians 4 is right up there, right? Every athlete that's ever been in uh, football long enough, right? He puts the Philippians 4.13 underneath his eyes, and he's going out into the field, right? Yeah, that's it. Right? Be careful. Sorry, football coach, right? I mean, I mean, I know you've never done that, Brian. So, but is that what Paul is talking about? I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What is Paul talking about there? Ties directly to our point right here. What is he talking about? That whole context, the whole thing, Paul is talking about one thing, contentment, contentment. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, he's saying, I can be content in any situation. That's what he's talking about. He's not, all the suffering, whether I have a lot, whether I have little, I am content. Why? What does he show us so clearly in Philippians over and over again? We looked at this for weeks now at different times. In Philippians, Paul makes it crystal clear that his contentment is found in one place, in one direction, in one person, and that is who? Christ. And that's why, that is what he means when he says, I have learned the secret of contentment. The secret is Christ, because Christ never changes. Christ never goes away. I can never lose Christ, and therefore I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, because he is the strength. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, stop praying to have the thorn removed. My grace is sufficient for you. I am your strength. Paul, just focus on me. That's what he's talking about. And so when it comes to fighting temptation and sexual sin and you're struggling through, you've got to turn to Christ. I've been teaching you this. I've been telling you this. You fight lust with love. Love for what? Love for Christ. You've got to learn. You've got to grow in your understanding of Christ to where your love for him is greater than your love for whatever that thing is you're fighting. That's how you do it. That was Thomas Chalmers, the power of new affection, the, explos- the expulsive power of new affection. We looked at last week. And then the last uh, motivator was fear, fear of man, fear of situation, and how that sets up the hurting heart. 
for uh, being susceptible to sexual sin. Those are the four negative motivators. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at the four affirmative motivators that is more the hungering heart where that is longing for not solace but satisfaction. Any questions? We've got a few minutes since we started a few minutes late. We're right on time. Any questions? Any comments? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So Mark's asking. Mark's asking a really good question. What would be the practical ways that fear would prepare or propel the heart to sexual sin? So think of it, think of it this way. Okay, you can put it in different scenarios. Right? Um, fear of loneliness. So think of a woman in particular, but men have the same struggle, especially as they get older. I just want to be married, so I'll try to sleep with somebody to seduce them into marrying me. Right? So you're wide open because of that fear. Uh, fear of rejection. If I don't sleep with this person, they're going to reject me. Fear of rejection. Yes, yeah. So I've got to try to do something else to try to woo this person, which ultimately, seductively or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So if I go relieve myself with myself, which is one step from homosexuality, if I go do that, then that will protect me from actually having an affair. And all that does, and you've learned this from this class, what does that do? Does that protect you or does that prepare you for an affair? It takes you further down the path. But the self-deceived trickery in your heart says, this is far better. If I do this, I'm safe. And all the while, your heart's like, keep doing that. You've, 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 you're impregnated now. The baby, the, the baby of sin is growing in the womb, and that eventually is going to come out. Because why? What you've learned again tonight, the heart is not satisfied. The heart will not be satisfied. It will keep growing. Fear of what? What else? Anything else? Fear of losing things. Fear of losing things. Yep, yep. Fear of, fear of missing out. Teenagers, right? I, I mean, everybody's doing it. I'm afraid. Yeah, you see how those how those realities uh, drive us. Public high school scary, very scary, yeah. With the pornography and the prevalence of so much, it is 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 scary, on so many levels. But yeah, nope. Fear is one of those uh, realities that haunts many people and opens up those doors. And so yeah, thank you guys for your good attention. Thank you for all that you're persevering through this. Um, Jesus said in. Uh, John uh, 14, 
when his disciples were facing much fear, Jesus wouldn't leave them there. And he said, let not your heart be troubled, right? Believe in me, believe also in God. In my Father's house, I've prepared for you many rooms and I go and prepare a place for you. And therefore, I, as I leave, I'll come back. And that's how Jesus dealt with the fear that was looming large in the hearts of his disciples. He reminded them of who he was and his plan for them. And so it is with us, right, when we face fear. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the blessing of this book and Dr. Street. We pray your blessing upon him and his continued ministry on so many levels. Lord, we pray for our homes, our families, our wives, our children, our churches. Lord, we just ask that you would do your work among us and in us and through us as we seek to pursue godliness, as we seek to kill ungodliness, that we might walk before you in a manner of holiness, for you are worthy. And in so doing, there is great delight. Help us to enjoy you evermore, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brothers. Well, we couldn't leave you at the end without giving you a very clear gospel message. In Romans chapter 3, roundabout verse 23, simply says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The thing about it is God is holy and we are sinful. Uh, verse 23 says, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. So the thing about it is, when we realize that we're sinful and that God is holy, uh, then we are in the place where we understand that we, by ourselves, cannot do anything for our salvation. We have to completely and fully rely on God, because there's no way that we can adopt ourselves into the family of God. And what God does is he sends his son in the form of flesh and he lives the perfect life, fulfills the law completely and has become our righteousness and has died for our sins in our place. The judgment and propitiates. Uh, that's what uh, the, that big word in in verse 25 says. It's the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that's the last part. We have to have that faith. We have to repent and believe and then walk by faith in him and believe and understand that we are his and that uh, he has provided a way for us to see that holy God. Thank you all for tuning in to the Truth Talks podcast. Once again, if you want more information on how to join our Bible study, uh, and this is open to all churches. This is not just open to the men of our church. This is open. We have a bunch of different uh, churches that have actually been showing up week by week. Pastors as well that have been showing up because it's not about uh, the pastor or the church. It's really about the word of God. And that's what is being, uh, is being presented and what's prevalent. But please email us at info at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Once again, that's info at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Thank you all for tuning in. And uh, also, you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, the Truth Talks podcast is on Instagram. You'll get updates about what's coming out and uh, where we're going. So 
please follow us on Instagram if you're on Instagram. Uh, some of us not are not, but it's okay. Uh, but we do have a uh, a place, a landing spot where you can look for us. Thank you all for tuning in. Take care. Delighting in the Word, that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church. <laughs>